Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode, I interview Eric, who identifies himself as a wannabe farmer with an idea. We talk about politics, philosophy, organizational structure, co-ops, revolution, the drug war, and the South American terror connection. Thanks for listening. Again, this is Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. Residing in the Pacific Northwest in the Seattle area, is That's that it. right? Yeah, how's everybody doing? So the the wannabe farmer with an idea. What is that idea? Um, well, basically, my my idea that is that uh, if we want to free the people, probably the easiest way to do it is to start with farming, uh, which is why I started looking into permaculture and regenerative farming. Uh, urban farming, stuff like vertical farms and ways to uh, basically feed people with less land use, less water. It it can be done anywhere. Um, And once people are eating nutritious food and actually thriving, then they have the potential to uh, move to the next step, which I mean, I I believe in revolution. Um, I'm not so much of a gun guy, but I, I think that more of a social evolution is what we're looking for. And that, that first step is bringing people together around food because the the table is the place where we all meet. Yeah, I think yeah. you um, set the stage there and have a lot of ideas I kind of want to get to one by one. Uh, the first would be primitive society and um, human evolution of our culture and stuff. You know, I guess we started, you, you would think, right, as a hunter-gatherer type society, at least that's what we're told, right? And then um, kind of the agricultural revolution, there was a time when people didn't have to scavenge for food. They were all able to kind of live in a small community that maybe grew over time, being able to cultivate the land and grow their own food. So that's, you're kind of getting us back to the basics, right? That's it, yeah. And actually, I think the transition came before that because... Um, like a lot of indigenous cultures, as they were hunter gathering and and migrating from here to there uh, with the season, they carried seeds with them. In fact, it was tradition in a lot of them that that the the elder women and and a lot of the the uh, people would just carry a bag of seeds. So as they traveled, they would scatter them. So the next year, as they went by, food would be more abundant. And, and eventually, they decided, you know what we don't really need to be walking around so much because we can work the land with irrigation. And and then we developed food surplus, which led into society becoming, you know, specialized tasks and, and all that stuff. And that's, that's really a pivotal part of 
I think a rebirth of our society too, the same as it was a birth of our civilization in the beginning. I remember reading the people's history of the world and uh, a a topic kind of was presented to me that I never thought of it that way. A primitive communism, you know, a time before there was money and corporations and centralized banking institutions and more sophisticated world banks. There was a time when people lived together. Um, There was a community there was family, people took care of one another. There wasn't the, the need for constant exchange of money for goods and services, but you were a member of the community and you contributed to that community, you know, and it wasn't forced onto you, but maybe you did it because it was the greater good for your, you know, your little um, community that you were living in. So I like that freedom, you know, that I like the idea of primitive communism and I like the idea of free association and societies organized around community instead of a capitalist society that seems to be uh, organized around centralized banking and world banking institutions and Wall Street and transnational corporations that seem to be running our lives. I, I think it'd be a great idea to just kind of get back to the basics and and have that society on the small scale where you know and um, participate in a, a community where you take care of each other. And it's not just about self-interest or financial gain. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I think it's actually simpler than that. Um, where you're saying primitive uh, communism, uh, I, I see our, our history before we uh, had the, the concept of elite rule imposed on us. Um, it's arguable when it came about because it kind of, it's weird. It launched simultaneously on three different continents about five to 7,000 years ago. And uh, before that, we very much were an agrarian society where it was to each, you know, as, as their need and from each as their ability. And so if you could help the, your community thrive, then you were rewarded with a thriving community. And that was fulfillment. And if you couldn't, if you didn't carry your weight in a lot of ways, that meant you were isolated, which meant certain death in the winter, right? So you were motivated not by financial gain or, 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 or profit or looking good to the king. You know, you, you were motivated by the fact that you wanted the best community possible. So you were going to be the strongest part you could be to help that. And, and you know, you were going to, make sure your kids were ready to, to hold their weight. And, and that's something that uh, a lot of people lose today because they're so busy chasing money and money doesn't exist. Money's a, a middleman, it's empty. And, and, and so there's no fulfillment there. So even if you have a bank account with billions and billions of dollars, you're sitting there and, and what do you have? You have worthless paper you can't take with you when you die. But if you're talking about uh, a, a community interaction like, like we were just talking about, where your fulfillment comes from a thriving community. Even after you die, you live forever because your input into that community goes to the next generation and and, and then they take it another step. I mean, there is no idea or invention out there that one singular person came up with. It's a sum of all of the ideas before that. So even if you're very early in that chain, that chain wouldn't have existed without you. And that's immortality right there. I mean, that's that's our species thriving. Wow, and, and we're getting deep here. Immortality. I, th- I think that's a fascinating idea. Yeah. I, I, I'd like to get to this because I talked to all my guests a little bit about this. I mean, what do you think 
the purpose of life is and you know our place here on this little planet and our solar system spinning around the center of the Milky Way galaxy. I think there was a report today that uh, some whistleblower, I don't, I don't even like to talk about too much UFO stuff, but some whistleblower apparently came out today and said that uh, the U.S. government had um, recovered a, a UFO and there were non-human pilots of that UFO. Yeah, I, I think that's, I don't know, I think it's kind of conspiracy. I think that the UFO stuff right now is being used to divert our attention and distract us. Oh, Although I, I wouldn't know, I don't know if it's true or not, but I'm, I'm rather skeptical with any of the UFO stuff. And it seems like there's a big emphasis on it right now. So it seems like they're trying to distract us from something else. So what do you think about the purpose of life, our place in the universe, and are we alone? Um, well, purpose of life, I'll start there. Uh, I think you could go a few different directions with that. Um, you know, I don't, immortality. I, I love that idea. At our most basic form, we're an expression of energy. And energy gets expended. It doesn't disappear. It changes form. And, and so really, our, our purpose in that system um, is to uh, use our energy for the, the, the benefit. Um, you know, we're trying not to be destructive. We're trying to be constructive. And, and that's something the where common good, you would say the benefit of the common good, the common good. Yes. Um, you know, as, as a, a parent, it's, it's to, uh, fulfill the needs of your children and make sure that they, um, you know, become not idiots, you know, not assholes kind of a deal. Um, you know, as someone who maybe is starting a farm, like say me, my purpose is to feed the community and see nourishment. And, and 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 use my energy that way. Um, now the UFO topic—that's that's a huge can of worms. <laughs> yeah, I'm I, actually, I wanted to get to it. I don't want to talk too much on it, but I think this uh, announcement came out today. You might as well mention it, right? I'll do I'll do a quick overview. So I've been into the ancient astronaut theory for a long time. I actually my my second reading through of the Bible as a young teenager. I think I was like 14, and um, I, I just wanted to understand what the hubbub was about. You know. And, and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, dude, if God really existed, we're talking aliens, right? And then I started looking at other religions and they all kind of sound like aliens. And so I bought into the ancient astronaut theory pretty young um, on my own. And then I found out like 10 years later that people had been writing books on it since the 70s. And I'm like, wow, cool. So I, look, I read those books and I'm like, wow, this is everything I've thought. And there's actually like details, all this stuff to it. Um, now, as far as the, the, the whistleblower today, he actually... Uh, spoke. I don't know if you've heard of Disclosure Project. Um, but I, they've I, been I used to follow a little bit more UFO stuff than I do now because I think, again, I think it's more distraction than anything. I do want to say one thing. I've heard and read some things that there's ancient cave paintings and stuff like that that date that like back 30, to years, dude. UFO, right? UFO and non-humanoid creatures. You know, yes. Uh, yes. that seems like it's just it's ironic or strange you know that we've been talking about it we're so obsessed with it i guess it's hard to look up at the sky and think we're not alone you know but is there something more to it you know where where did we where did this obsession come from i mean is our minds just insanely curious i think yeah obviously yes i think we're always thinking um but uh yeah there's, there's maybe maybe there's a little more substance to this ufo phenomenon than uh maybe the government or anyone has been leading on to, and maybe there's p people in power that know things, or do you think it's all just, uh, you know, grainy videos like Bigfoot? You know what I mean? 
what I got from the disclosureproject.org, uh, there were several different people who, I mean, we're talking about ex-military, we're talking about people who worked in black ops and, and you know, the stuff that nobody's supposed to know about that came out and actually testified. Uh, there was over a hundred of them. And I mean, we're talking everything from army, you know, to, from pilots to, to generals, to um, scientists coming out and basically saying, uh, we've been in contact with 70 plus alien species. Most of them are peaceful. Some of them are hostile. Um, and there's actually uh, supposed to have been a meeting between a couple of different presidents. Eisenhower, Eisenhower. I've heard that before. Eisenhower is supposed to met with them on multiple occasions. But uh, supposedly, George Washington. You think this you think, actually happened? You think this it, meetings with alien um, extraterrestrials and U.S. presidents happened? Do you believe that? Yeah. Yeah, I actually do. I, I think that there's actually. Um, I mean, there's so much evidence to say that they were in contact with us regularly. Uh, I mean, you're talking about on, on now, okay, on four or five different continents, the same extraterrestrials with like a bird face show up in ancient, ancient paintings. These are people that didn't have the internet. They did, had no way to contact each other. So why are they doing paintings of these extraterrestrial beings that looked so similar? Um why are they building pyramids with the same architecture? Why, you know, I mean, there's so many things that say that there was ancient astronauts. Workers, workers, workers built the pyramids, though. Like, that's how, how there's no mystery to that. Workers, possibly right. slaves, right? Workers and slaves built the, the pyramids. And the history of humankind, uh, the pages of it is filled with uh, stories of class oppression and exploitation of labor. That's what I think. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And, and that's something that, I think came about with elite rule. I mean, going back to that, once you have, I mean, cause, okay. So we talked in the beginning about food surplus. So you have these farmers and they figured out how to make a bunch of food. And then the people on the top of the hill, and this was the first con, this is kind of what led into elite rule. The people on the top of the hill said, we need to keep our food safe. So let's put it in this building that we have up on top of the hill. And the farmer said, yeah, okay, let's do that. And then they put it up there. Now was invented the first police force because those people at the top of the hill said, we need to protect our food stores. And who are they protecting it from? They were keeping it from the farmers. And so now all of a sudden you have the first kind of capitalist enterprise where it was all about stealing labor and withholding it from the workers. And, and that in, in many ways, those people, the, the, you know, supposed elites that, I mean, I, I look at them as oligarchs or parasites or whatever. I, you I always call. quote it too. I know this is an audio only, but I always quote it too. When I say elites, I'm quoting, right. you know, yeah. They're quotes on the elites because they are not elite. These these people are anything but genetically course. inferior to, to your average worker. I mean, as workers, we are, we are smarter, we're more creative and, and we're more clever. And, and everything that they have, they took from us. I mean, they don't invent stuff. We invent it and then they take it. That's they, right. they don't right. intellectual property i mean i just oppose that in principle i think that oh, yeah. we have a much better society with free exchange of ideas uh pharmaceuticals all that sorts of things technology so one of the things that america did as it was growing as growing as an empire was still technology from britain and what did britain do when it was growing as an empire still technology from india and other more advanced countries africa sure yeah and oh my what we're gosh. doing right now, we're, we're criminalizing China's 
Uh, Europe would probably still be in the dark ages if no it wasn't for the Moors. No doubt. So it was a bunch of black Muslims from North Africa that came up and re-civilized Europe. If not, it probably would have burned itself to the ground. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> but America is trying to, you know, make it an international incident for all this uh, exchange and supposedly, you know, China trying to steal technology and steal ideas. Um, that's literally what every country and every empire has done throughout all of history. When there's a good idea, you want to copy that idea and you want to learn that idea. And then who, who benefits from property rights? Is it the people that might have cheaper medications and cheaper computers or cheaper uh, technological devices, uh, tools? Uh, is it no. the people? No, it's the people that own those property <laughs> rights, right? Withholding like the class. Like, right. Yeah. yeah. No, uh, it, it's... No, I, 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 we got to so much stuff here, and we're all over the place. But I did. You did say something about the. You did say something about the, the banking. Oh, let me come back to the banking. I did read. Okay, fourteen ninety one, fourteen ninety three. Homo sapiens. You know, videos and all kinds of stuff about the evolution of yes. human society and stuff like that. What I didn't realize in the Americas is there was a lot of hierarchy there. There were elites in America before. Columbus, you know, there were structured, complex, sophisticated societies with elites, uh, ruling classes. Aztecs and the Mayans very much were based off dynastic legacy. And I mean, if if you're, I mean, you were born into wealth long before, you know, Columbus and the Spaniards came here and conquered. It, it, It was something that, but there was also many other societies of indigenous people that had evolved beyond that, which is kind of what gives me hope we can. Um, you, you know, they, they they had developed democracy long before a white man ever stepped foot on these shores. And, and that's something that, and they didn't call it democracy. They just called it fair. They just called it, this is how we do stuff because we're stronger. I mean, think about it. If, if you're limited to one person's ideas, you're not getting very far. No. But if no. you have a hundred people putting ideas into a pool and now you've strengthened your, your potential. How about now all of a sudden, how about now all of a sudden people with you automobile. Now all of a sudden you have airplanes. Now all of a sudden you have, you have, uh, uh, you know, the cotton gin to, to save people from the backbreaking work of, of splitting the seed out of cotton. I mean, it, it's, this comes from several people that, and that's where i think the idea of patents and copyrights is so crooked because no one person can patent an idea it's not one idea it's thousands and, and until we get over the fact that one person can own this little bit of an idea that never would have happened if it wasn't for the thousand people before it we're, we're, we're just going to keep being impressed i mean that we're just going to the same people who withhold the the, the parasite class is going to keep holding that over us and that's we can't do that anymore. It's it's time to step out of it and evolve. I think I think we must democratize and take over what's rightfully ours as the working class, and um, without without internationalism and uh, democracy winning outright over tyranny and class oppression, oligarchy, right. plutocracy, we're all doomed. If the same people 
uh, continue running the world for a few hundred more years. Uh, we know exactly where we're heading and how much time do we even have? I mean, we're every day, you know, every day I read a report about the um, forever chemicals, you know, and the, the, the oceans where thousands of fish are dying because um, they can't hold the oxygen. Uh, the hottest summer on record, but next summer is going to be hotter. Um you know, the water off the coast of Florida is 110 degrees. The ocean is 110 degrees off the coast of Florida. That you is also awesome. said hope, and that's a great word. Uh, yeah. I forget. I think this uh, might be von Humburg, Wilhelm von Humburg. Humboldt, I'm sorry. Pessimism of intellect, but optimism of will. It looks bad. It looks bleak. But the worst thing we could do is to just give up. Right. Well, exactly. No. And, and, and I think it's funny because like, I like to say the idea of uh, uh, seize the means of production. And I think we really need to do that, but I don't think it's going into a factory and taking it over. I, I think it's building localized, small scale, new factories that do things better, create better products and just cut the people who own those big factories out of the loop. No more revenue stream for them. Screw them. We're going to keep all of the, the the value and benefit of our labor, and we're going to keep it local in the community, and and, and it's going to make them obsolete. And and it, I, I think that that's where I focused on food. I think food is the easiest industry to take back to local communities. And, and once you've done that, now now all of a sudden, General Mills and 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 McDonald's and Coca Cola, fuck them, they're they're gone. I'm sorry, I don't know if I can I swear on this. I, I'm not big I, on the swearing. I usually keep it clean. We'll we'll allow one f bomb. Oh, okay, okay. I've I've used my tick. I'm done <laughs> on that one. But uh, change my setting on uh, you know my podcast app. Thanks a lot, Jerk. Right. Sorry. <laughs> I'll I'll just bleep next time. But uh, anyway, it, it's like you know attacking them and taking them out they're well healed they have security they have militias protecting them i mean these people they have the cops protecting them they have the military protecting them. so uh, if we're going to go fight them let, let me let me interject here because you, you talked about revolution and violence I'm, right. a, I'm a big chomsky head and he said this and i think it's brilliant you know because i'm all for peaceful revolution mlk we talked about him a little bit uh in the pre-show call uh, and let's hopefully get to that because we're all over the place, but it's great. I love this discussion. But there's only going to be violence in a democratic populist revolution if the ruling class um, uses it. You know, it's, it, we're, if we're the ones that are taking over and it's a popular revolution and it's democratic, there's only going to be violence if those with privilege don't go away quietly. And why would we think they would go away quietly? You know what I mean? Right. Typically, power needs to be taken. But I think if enough people um, change their way of thinking, I think the power is in the government. That's what David Hume said. You know, there's an elite group of people that do the governing. And the only thing they control is the power of opinion, the power to persuade. And what Walter Littman went on to call the manufacturing of consent. Uh, I think the power is always within the governed, you know, and, and no question about it, though, that um, the governed have police and military and jets and bombs and all, all sorts of methods of, of lethal violence. But if there's a populist democratic revolution, a bottom up revolution, not some sort of right wing coup, but a bottom up populist revolution, I don't necessarily think there has to be violence unless the ruling class determines they're not going to go out of the fight. You know what I mean? Here's the way I put it. Everything that's ever been won by war is lost by war. So if we really want to end war, which I think most of us really do, 
Uh, in fact, I would say all but a very few of us really want to end war. Uh, well, we're, we're going to have to take this next step through almost like a mass awakening where it would be ridiculous for them to try and bring the violence. Class consciousness. Class. We need, we need, yeah. a, we need a class consciousness. You know, we need people to wake up. And wake I think up. they are. Um, I think I saw the, the, uh, Gen Z and millennials. I think it's less than 20% now polled say that they are happy to be an American. You know, there's a lot of bad, bad things going on there, but I think that's good news for us. Not because I, I hate being American because I don't, you know, I don't think I'd, I don't know if I want to live anywhere else in the world. We have so many resources, so many great people, so much um, opportunity potential. here. Yeah, so much potential. <laughs> yes. um, but I don't. I oppose nationalism. I oppose yes. arbitrary borders, arbitrary government, nation states. Uh, I mean, the United States in 1776 has been in constant war, and we haven't even been threatened. The only time our borders were actually threatened was the War of 1812. They haven't been threatened since. Um, Japan bombed Hawaii, and Hawaii was a colony. How did we get that uh, colony? We took it at gunpoint, you know? Yes. So they, they, they bombed a colony in the Pacific Ocean that we took at gunpoint. So they didn't threaten our borders. And, and in fact, uh, World War II, there was great threat to Japan that the Pacific Fleet was going to go and um, fire, firebomb Japan. So they were kind of, um, you know, making the offensive so that they didn't get wiped out, you know. But, I mean, I don't think you can even count that. I think the only time the U.S. Uh, borders, the, the state, you know, the, the, the continuous states or whatever were threatened was the War of 1812 hundreds of years ago i mean there's there's no threat to the united states mexico isn't invading canada isn't invading and yet we're at constant war and have been since inception i mean if you look at the fact that we have texas arizona and new mexico we kind of invaded mexico and moved our border into we, their we homes did we, we didn't kind of we did it <laughs> yeah exactly it. Yeah. exactly no everything we've done has been through invading and so to try and play the victim is pretty ridiculous and here's the way the world works uh force typically uh dominates global affairs um it's russia sitting at the negotiating table saying you know we kind of want ukraine they're taking it by force is anyone going to stop them no because we don't want world war but when we when the united states wanted to dominate middle east oil rights were we sitting at the negotiating table i wish i wish that the world was run by rules and um you know, Common human sense. rights were taken into real consideration, but it's not. You know, the world we live in is very violent, and typically um, force uh, wins in the end. And who has the biggest military in the world? The United States. Who's the world's biggest superpower? The United States, you know. And yes. um, as far as I'm aware of, I don't believe China has any history of invasion of other countries. I think Japan, they had some some wars and whatnot. I'm, I'm no expert on, yeah, uh, on every, China, every, right? Every but, country historically has expanded its borders and, and China is a pretty big country. So I'm guessing there was some invasion to, to extend themselves to where they're at today. I mean, it's, but you so, go, so for example, as our enemy, right. And, and, um, I see the news stories all the time about, um, you know, China flew close to us, uh, ships in the South China right. sea and whatnot. Right. 
or just you know innocently there doing a military exercise. What are we doing on China's borders? What if China was conducting these types of operations, uh, you know, outside of on near Long Island, New York, or right. off the coast of uh, San Francisco? You know, so I, I just think this nation state stuff and this posturing, and it's going to get us all killed. It's going to end up on World War if we could just kind of accept the fact that you know after World War II and industrialized killing. Uh, we need to end this game, you know, of constant war. I mean, that was the Europeans' favorite sport for several hundred years is slaughtering each other. And that finally came to an end uh, after World War II and with the invention of the atomic bomb and Nazi industrialized killing. I mean, we we and the Europeans knew that if we, if we play this game again, it could be the end of all of us, right? Right. Yeah, no, and I, I think a lot of that comes back to, I mean, everything from borders to war all comes back to the concept of elite rule and, and the, the fact that there was this one person at the top of the chain that decided, you know what, I want this border here so I can claim this as mine and I can extract all the resources from inside of it. And then they looked at the border and went, you know what, I think I got to reach across this border to get some more resources because like all parasites, they overconsume their you know, everything they have and, you know, eventually realize, oh man, we're going to run out. We got to keep this consuming game going. And, and it's, uh, you know, it reminds me when, you know, W. Bush came out and basically was saying, we need people to go and buy stuff from stores because that's what keeps the economy running. And it's like, wow, then maybe our economy needs to be redesigned. <laughs> yeah, redesigned, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I just want to say too that I'm no, I'm no, I don't want to praise China or Russia. I think every country is victim of, uh, or is not a victim, is is carrying out violence, uh, human rights abuses against its domestic population, uh, war crimes in, in terms of oh, yeah. expansion. I and I like to quote, or I like to quote Mick Wallace here. Uh, he's a politician I've watched from the far. He uh, from afar. I really like some of the stuff. He says he's very critical of NATO and U.S. foreign policy and said something once that really resonated. I've, I've never met a government that I've liked. I've never met a government that I've liked either. I'm no communist. I'm an anarchist. But deep down, fundamentally, I want a society where people can um, have free association, where they can determine by themselves you know, where they're going to dedicate their time. They're not under some master, uh, under wage slavery under external command to, to produce like a widget at some factory, eight hours a day, 40 hours a week, you know, 52 weeks a year, you know, I think, uh, and you had talked about, you know, kind of your idea. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about like co-ops and how um, the management structure, I looked into co-op a little bit too. Yeah, and ownership structure more importantly. I mean, so, I, yeah, I think... that's what I looked at. So co-op, it doesn't necessarily have to just be managed, you know, by the employees. And we can talk about Mondragon a little bit too. There's lots of different forms of co-ops. It's kind of a loose word, but I love, so talk about your idea and, you know, how you're going to distribute um, leadership and um, oversight and just ownership of, of your idea of your, I guess your co-op or your community that you'd like to start. So the the model I'm building, and I'm looking at our time. I don't know if we only have six minutes, but I'm I'm going to try. We got six this. minutes to go. We'll take a little pause, but I'll I'll edit it out, and we'll just go right into it. So um, yeah, I'll try and do it in about two. Um, the model that I'm going for is is collective ownership. Uh, I decided to put it. I mean, we live in a capitalist society, so I decided to put it into a business uh, model because it, it's the easiest way to kind of take advantage of the system as it is. Um. I'm starting. I'm starting a, a a farm, 
per se, uh, an urban farm. That's uh, it, at first, it's just going to be me. As soon as I have employees, it's going to be employee owned. Um, the idea is once we have enough people that leadership, you know, because I mean, five people getting together, you don't really need like, oh, I'm the leader. But once you have, you know, say 100, you need one person to say, okay, when it comes to this particular aspect, I'll be the expert, the one that, you know, decides, okay, this is how we should do this because I've been doing it for this long. And I think, you know, I've got some good ideas that you guys are all behind. And so you're going to trust me with that. Um, but uh, it, I mean, as far as ownership, I, I think that developing that collective model and as far as like authority and, and management, that collective model is really uh, what we need to do. And so this, this is going to allow me to do it on a small scale and eventually expand it to something where um, you know, it could be replicated and scaled up to fit almost any model, uh, you know, to, uh, to a point where eventually like a, a small town political structure could be run this way. Uh, you know, then you get up to a county could be run this way and eventually a state. And, and once we've kind of ironed out some of the details, I mean, to me, I, I just acknowledge borders, but really I was talking more about size of population than any kind of geographic alignment and, and, and to be able to have collective rule. I mean, like take the office of president. We have one person as president. That's stupid. One person is not reliable on everything. But if you had a committee that everyone put in because they trust and, 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 and you know, they represent kind of their ideals, that makes sense. And, and it has a chance to have a more diverse input. And, and, and that's just kind of what I'm trying to put not, to a not business Not going to be the same elites, though. I think what our political system needs is real working class representation and i also think that you know we want to be represented by people of our own ranks we don't want to be represented by politicians who are funded by biz big business that um work with polling agencies to tell them it sounds better if you say it this way and you know and it, it appeals to more people this way but when they get into office they we know damn right that they're going to do whatever they right, all the money right Right. Yeah. You're going to follow the money. So um... I actually have a, a solution for that. And like with the with the business model, it gives me a chance to start it small and, 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 and scale it up organically as it grows. But if I could snap my fingers right now and change the way we do things, I would retire all of Congress. And then I would fill their seats by lottery. You do it at the state level or actually, I mean, you could do it at the city or town level. And then once people have held that seat and kind of know what's going on once their term is over now they're in the pool to be chosen by lottery to move up to the next level which would be county and then once they've done that term they come out they're in the lottery to go state level and then you know and so you're building out of instead of just having the same elites running election campaigns to get themselves voted in you actually have an actual sample of the electorate do your duty. You've gotten, you know, you, almost like the draft, but you're not going to go hold a gun. You're going to help us make sure that, that as many people are represented in this government as possible. And I mean, if you have to have that kind of an institution, I think that's the only way to do it and still be democratic and, and have, well, not democratic necessarily, but collective and, and actually have a, a, a clean, true sample of the electric. And then like anything like, say, governor or president, which I mean, I think that needs to be totally reconstructed. Do we, yeah. Do we even need? Do we need that stuff? I mean, do we need uh, a governor? Do we need a president? Do we need? I think we probably need Congress and representatives. Um, we probably need the court system 
Do we when need I, some sort of uh, executive that runs and has some super, you know? I, I think you do. But when I say committee, you wouldn't want a committee of 100. You'd want a committee of like three. And that way you would have representation for people who are maybe more conservative and representation for people who are more progressive and representation for, you know, a wider range of people that are at the table. And then, um, you know, of those three, maybe one of them is, you know, I actually have a plan for that. It looks like we have time. I'll run it down real quick. So you have a six-year term, okay? A new a new person is elected to the committee every two years. So for your first two years, you're just kind of learning how things are done, and you're kind of an advisory role. The second two years, you're you're the executive in charge, and then the third two years, you're kind of cinching up the things you didn't get to finish in your two years, and you're in an advisory role. And if you're that middle one, that one that's in charge. The other two can veto you. So if you're totally a loon, they're just gonna be like, no, you need to sit down. No, that's wrong. And that's that's what we need to be able to have is that check and balance. But it needs to be actually within the executive. And there's no way to do that with one person because all you have is this one person and all these nameless advisors who chances are they were advising the last administration. Well, even exactly, if you jump exactly. from Republican the turnover, to Democrat, it's, it's still the same. <laughs> and and, and you know, and so if you take the power and status away from those roles, then you won't have greed be what drives people to them, I think. And if we as soon as we can get that out of it, we can actually have leadership that's true leadership, not oppressor. We're talking leadership. OK, so you did mention a little bit there, uh, Adam Smith, uh, the famous maybe father of capitalism or capitalist thought had mentioned something about um, the vision of labor, you know, how it's a lot more efficient for um, people to have their specific role in uh, production and allows for more, better, I guess, productivity. Um, if, if someone is making, you know, pins at a factory or widgets in a factory, if there are cars in a factory, the assembly line is much more efficient, right? That sort of thing. But what doesn't get mentioned a lot with Adam Smith's division of labor and capitalist thought was he also wrote a criticism of uh, division of labor, you know, and that's why I think it's a good thing to have people do different roles. Like, I don't think we need janitors if we all clean up after each other. I don't think we need executives that determine the direction of a company. I think the more democracy, the better. I think that we're definitely going to need, you know, ways to streamline decision making like we all can't vote on every you know issue but uh in regards to what adam smith said on the division of labor is over time the division of labor will create ignorant and stupid creatures as a human being can be if we right. continue this constant division of labor where you do this tiny job this insignificant job and you just do your part. And if the worker next to you does their part, we're going to produce a lot of widgets. And the person on top is going to benefit <laughs> from uh, from the profits, right? Um, but what do you think about, um, I don't think necessarily we need a lot of leadership, but more working class representation. Let me let me talk to this a little bit about Mondragon, which is the world's largest co-op um, right. in Spain. I looked up some numbers. Uh, I don't feel like looking it up right now. I just want to talk about, so first off, they have... Um, it's in a capitalist system, you know, so there's definitely similarities to a corporation. 
with Mondragon, which has over a billion in assets and nearly a hundred thousand employees. Um, it's it's in all different sorts of sectors, from healthcare to um, banking uh, to technology. Um, and again, it's in a global capitalist system, so it's not all rosy. But they do have um, wage ratios, so um, executives and managers can't make in some instances three to one, you know, three times as much as the lowest paid uh, wage, uh, as high as nine to one. And I think at the average for the, for the co- corporation, or I guess it's a, it's a co-op federation, you know, these are just uh, descriptive terms, but the average is about five to one. The least, uh, the lowest paid employee makes um, one fifth of the highest paid, you know, in, in many of these uh, setups around the world. They also vote on, um, they also vote on management. So you're not a manager and you don't pick all the employees and there's some sort of hierarchy of domination, but typically managers are selected um, amongst the working class ranks um, a term, just like any other election. And when your term's up, you can run again. Or I think there's a, it's a great thing to um, have uh, shared roles, you know, in society where maybe I'll be the manager for a year. Maybe it's a headache. Maybe, we need we need someone else to have a say next year. You know, maybe we should constantly rotate these decision making rules uh, in the community, in the workplace, and maybe we shouldn't have so much division of labor. And maybe we don't need executives or presidents or boards of directors, but instead uh, more democratic working class representation. So, what say you? Uh, as an anarchist, I oppose unjust hierarchy. I oppose uh, leaders or elite domination. Uh, and I, I think a classless society is possible. Do you? Well, I definitely do too. I, I, and I think to understand it fully, you got to go back to the origin, right? So when we had food surplus, now you can specialize tasks and you ended up with like blacksmiths and you ended up with people who would make farming tools. So farming could be done more efficiently. Uh, you had people who fashioned secondary products out of what was farmed, stuff like, um, you know, baskets or, you know, just, just whatever. And, and, and I think one of the limitations that came with that is if your dad was a blacksmith, you probably were stuck being a blacksmith, even if you had a mind for something else. And, and, and that's something where I think it, it, it's expressed today where, when you're talking about the, the division of labor in the class society, if, if you've worked in warehouses, chances are, your children are going to work in warehouses. If you've worked in hospitality, chances are your, your children are, you know, you, you wish for better for them, but it seems like there's this rut that is stuck because you're born into the same kind of caste system that was, that was developed. Yeah. And the United States is way down the list in upward mode. uh, I think it's upward mobility, uh, scale or something like that basically you know yeah, we're, how, we're how, like 34 out of 42 yeah, yeah something like that i mean the american dream is no longer you know so no. we're not there's no american dream there's no uh upward uh movement in society kind of if you're born born poor you, you kind of tend to die poor and if you you're born rich you're offered so many privileges at birth and it's hard to be born rich and, and die poor. There's so many measures and protections in place, like patent rights and yes. uh, very limited. Uh, there's no wealth tax. Look, the inherited tax is, uh, is very minimal in, in America, so you can give a lot of your wealth to your kids. And someone starting out with a billion dollars of wealth in the bank, a worker couldn't make in hundreds of generations. You know, that's so much wealth, and then you're making compound interest on it. 
Uh, I think if we're ever going to have a classless society, we need to first start with a really strong uh, wealth tax and a really strong inheritance tax. Big time. Yeah, no, and I, I think we need to get rid of passive income because it's one of those things where a lot of those people are making money without working. And so there, there are people, and, and I've known a few of them, who have never worked a day in their life because they've never had to. You know, the, the trust fund babies that, you know, like, I, I okay, so I used to work with a buddy. Uh, he pretty much just worked so that he could support his drug habit because uh, his parents were going to pay for that. And um, so, but his, so his parents were like multi, multi-millionaires. Like we're talking into the hundreds of millions. They had money. And this was back... Uh, this is like the early 2000s. So that was really big money back then. And so he knew that he was never going to be able to out earn his father. So why bother? So he just became a drug addict because, you know, why bother? Now he's clean and he's got a kid and he's he's moved on in life and he's actually a pretty impressive individual. But it, it, it's one of those things where it's like when you have this insurmountable wealth that is so intimidating that it, it's even like sheltering to the children where they just are, are beaten by it because they don't get to become to their potential because they're they're drowning in that world so even if you're on the poor side or the rich side it's not good for you and so the, the sooner we can break down this caste structure and, and and give everybody the chance to thrive in a fulfilling society in a, in a productive and progressive environment it's going to be better for the rich even if they have to not have that yacht that you can land a helicopter on that they're going to be better off because they're not going to be trying to chase the consumption rate and the burn rate of their family you know they're not going to have to uphold some oh well you oppressed these people for emeralds i'm oppressing children of those people for lithium ha 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 you know i mean it's like we've got <laughs> captain uh what, what what are people calling him uh space karen <laughs> like, oh yeah right Elon. this yeah. guy <laughs> this guy the descendant of an apartheid emerald mine, right. you know, somehow was supposed to be great. And he didn't invent Tesla. He didn't invent the SpaceX. Nothing did he even work on. It, it, he buys his way into these companies and he started with incredible wealth that some of us will never obtain. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah. And because of it, he's just floundering. He, he actually has to do something for once in his life and he can't manage. <laughs> he just is like, oh, I don't know. I, I just usually people do this for me. <laughs> it's just, so I'm holding, I'm, I got a book here. I'm holding up Why Save the Bankers. This is Thomas Piketty. He's a, uh, yeah. a great economist, a French economist, a very progressive uh, socialist economist. Um, I don't think anywhere else in the world is socialist a bad word or scare word other than America. But I think it's pretty uh, easy. I think he described himself as you know socialist economist. Maybe you wouldn't. I don't want to speak for him, but a lot of his ideas are very very progressive. So this is why save the bankers. Why should we bail out you know the bankers? That's the one book. But I've read a bunch of his books, and he talks about some of the same ideas. So first off, flight of capital is a huge problem. So I brought up a couple of things that he likes and I think is a great idea. Uh, a wealth tax for sure. You know because these people. Uh, with the compound interest. I think I read something about Warren Buffett uh, and since the deregulation of the economy in the 1970s. I think he made, um, I, I don't want to make up a number, but I'm going to. <laughs> I think he made something like 90 or 95% of his wealth after the age of 70, something like that. It's a crazy number. Uh, he's an oh, older dude. No, look her. back at like the Great Depression. That made, well, I mean, the wealthy took, took what they already had because they were already wealthy, like insanely wealthy. 
Well, if you make money during depression or economic boom, it doesn't matter the state of the economy. They're always making money. When they have a chance to to rob all of the value and resources of the underclass and compile it into their own, because they're the ones that have cash on hand that can put it in and buy these resources when they're you know pennies on the dollar, and then when everything evens itself back out, you know between the bubble bursting, they, they it becomes worth more. And then what do they do? They sell it. And then they take that cash that they made pretty much overnight. They put it in the bank. They hold it as art or Gucci bags, you know, that they have a closet full of or or whatever. It, that it's well hoarded. It's not in the circulation. If you wanted exactly. uh, money. It's like dragging from the Hobbit. <laughs> <laughs> if you wanted if you wanted wealth uh, circulated in the economy, you should give it to uh, working class people who are going to use it to buy things. You know, if you want. Kind of the way we ran before the uh, Reagan tax cuts. I mean, just saying. <laughs> no, no doubt. And um, yeah, I mean, the, the, so I, I kind of want to get, there's so many things I want to get to, but um, I think first off, I want to say educated electorate. So if we're going to have a real democracy, what we need is an educated electorate and the ruling class, you know, they control the media. They have great influence at the academic institutions to, um, you know, kind of get their agenda across, you know, the capitalist way of living, the preferred way of living. Obviously, there's so much dogma in Western culture, even in movies, you know, so it's everywhere. But um, we need an educated electorate if we're really going to have any sense of democracy. But the ruling class isn't going to allow that. And that's back to David Hume and the power of opinion. That's the only thing the ruling class has over us. Uh, But they're going to use their power and influence and deluge us with uh, propaganda, lies, misinformation to make sure that we stay ignorant, to make sure that we stay passive, to make sure we stay obedient, and to allow us to distract us with ufo stuff or whatever maybe it's or, or to make sure that we hate people with a different skin tone so we can stay divided or people who kneel to a different god or kneel differently to the same god or i mean whatever i mean they're going to find so many reasons to uh keep us from looking up at them going wait a minute my fight is with you <laughs> they, they, don't want, they don't want class consciousness they don't want us to no. a class awakening no, they don't 99 want... is a way bigger number than one <laughs> absolutely and that's a that was a big movement you know and we can talk about some uh, left left wing movements and some of them don't seem to um, you know miss the mark a little bit. I think what we really need is working class organization. Um, I think some of the left movements haven't resonated with working class people, and right. um, I think the well, right uses I, it to I be think divisive. I so like done something if it had a foundation. I think um, I think like the trans and LBGT community, the right wing uses that to be divisive to make sure uh, that we never come together, you know, and to, you know, make us preoccupied and distracted with the race and skin tone of a star or, or a cartoon in a Disney movie. And it's like, right. who cares? That doesn't matter. Well, That's it's, it's just demon politics. As long as everybody has a boogeyman that they can, uh, you know, be afraid of when they lay their head down on their pillow at night, then you, you know that you have them in your pocket because you designed the boogeyman. And, and that's something where, I mean, we just have to, people are different. If we were all the same, that would suck. It'd be boring. Yeah, boring. We want to live in. Right. About the right. boogeyman. I got to, I got to, I got to make this HL Mencken quote. The aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed 
and by an endless series of hobgoblins, most of them imaginary. So that's just fear politics, you know. Yeah. They're, they're trying to create a boogeyman. They're trying to create a hobgoblin to make us scared and to essentially, like, for, for example, the military-industrial complex in the Pentagon. So I tweeted about this the other day. 61% of the military budget um, they can't account for. 61% right. of $3.5 trillion. Oh, 61% of $3.5 trillion. You can find the article. I tweeted it the other day. That's a lot of you money. That's crazy. Trillions I bet, they can, I bet they can account for at least half of that. But if they told us where it went, there would be revolution. <laughs> <laughs> we got to get into this dark money stuff. We had talked about it, you know, in the yeah. pre-show and all that stuff. But um, yeah. it's the fifth audit that the Pentagon has um, failed uh, in a row. And the, the, in the article, they said, well, you know, essentially I'm paraphrasing here, but we're going to try to get our act together by... 2027 like maybe we'll pass an audit by 2027 imagine if the irs came to me and said you know where's where's 61 percent of your money going i'd be like give me to 2027 and i'll, I'll get back to you and I'll, I'll try to do a little bit better you know like how's that gonna go you know there's there's two um courts of law in the united states one for the rich and powerful and one for everybody else you know but um yeah, I mean, we got a lot of democratizing to do. Uh, public institutions uh, are at uh, historic lows. Congress, you know, flirting with signal digits. Uh, the uh, Supreme Court just hit their historic low of all time a couple weeks ago, um, blocking student loan and not uh, and overturning Roe v. Wade. But um, yeah, I think that uh, trying to get to, I guess, yeah. And then I remember Donald Rumsfeld. Um, was it like what two point three trillion? We don't know where it went. You know, in two thousand and one, before the global war on terror got kind of started, and America was ta- attacked by you know terrorist uh, a terrorist uh, attack that nobody would you know condone. Uh, I remember his. But we've been doing we've we been doing we these know, types of terrorist we attacks. Know what we don't know. Right, <laughs> but, but it was the first time that the United States was targeted. We have been targeting the Middle East for decades in the global war on terror. This was the oh, yeah. first time it actually came to American shores. That's the only reason, you know, the American states well, not. That's the only reason it was different. But the United States, we don't exactly have uh, uh, solid evidence that it was entirely the Middle East that did it. Right, so I mean, <laughs> there's. There's a lot of conspiracy wormholes you can go down with that, but right. there was no, definitely. Right. Right. I mean, we were itching with our finger on the trigger we before that happened yeah. enough yeah. that someone maybe had uh, reason to allow it to happen when the threat was there. And you know, I mean, even that alone is, you know, if I know somebody's coming after you, but I could profit from it, and I don't stop them, it's kind of like me doing it. So I would stop them. But there, I have a, a heart. major, yeah, yeah. There's a major problem for a society and an economy, a global economy, that profits off of war. You know, so um, John Maynard Keynes, one of the post, one of the most famous post World War II economists, uh, and I think he helped coin and develop GDP. One of the things that's never mentioned with GDP, uh, and that we're always supposed to be obsessed with GDP, did it grow by how much? Did it grow 1%, 1.3%? Who gives a shit? Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things that he wanted to to make sure of is that war and war making and weapons contracting and all that stuff was excluded because that's going to provide us an incentive to constantly be at war. You know, it's not excluded. The, the trillion dollar weapons and hundreds of billions of dollars weapons uh, industry in America. We're the biggest weapons trafficker in the world. I think it was like 40% of all weapons in 2020 
uh, U.S. was involved in the in the in the uh, in the shipment of, and uh, it's a hundred plus billion dollar industry, and we got these um, defense contractors, Raytheon, uh, Boeing, um, you know, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman. They're all itching for profits and profiteering in the in the war in Ukraine. I think that Ukraine was a victim in this Russian aggression. But it's no different than the United States attacking South Vietnam. It's no different than the United States attacking Iraq twice. It's no different than the United States attacking Afghanistan. We are the intellectuals and people in America were very quick to call out Russia for their attack on Afghanistan. But when we did it, we're supposed to be bringing them democracy. It's it's ludicrous. Right. And I think not only did it cost millions of lives, but also. Um, I think $12 trillion or $8 trillion, a lot of trillions, you know, a lot of money for the global war on terror and how to even track it, you know, incredible. But uh, yeah, I think, I think you had mentioned, so I think it's time to get into it. Uh, why don't we talk about the, the Gary Webb story, uh, the dark money out there with, um, you know, financing these, uh, you know, uh, terrorist projects, and, you know, these, these uh, overthrowing of governments around the world. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, all, and I did see like, so since the deregulation of the economy, I think there's something like $21 trillion out there right now. I just read a story uh, the other day, tweeted that out too, that there's 12, $21 trillion out there of money that we, we can't account for. We don't, we don't know where it is, whether it's in crypto, whether it's offshore, whether it's in tax havens like Panama. Uh, and I did want to mention too, uh, the Thomas Pinkety thing. I know I'm getting to a lot here, but before I forget it, he had mentioned that unless the global countries come together and say that we need to have a minimum wealth tax, we have we need to have a minimum corporate tax, we need to have a minimum inheritance tax, that we're going to see this more offshoring of money, and we're going to see a flight of capital where, let's say, America institutes a very steep wealth tax, all the money is going to get out of America and go to Northern Ireland or wherever. I think that's where Apple is supposedly headquartered or, you know, some other tax haven, Panama, the Virgin Islands. So unless we come together and have some sort of, you know, congruency or whatever, cooperation between countries of the world, the wealth are always going to be able to put governments in competition with each other, offering them the lowest tax rate and the biggest benefits package and the most subsidies. Unless we work together, there's just going to be a flight of capital and it's just going to be taken out of circulation like it already is, you know, with these people hoarding vast amounts of wealth. Uh, $21 trillion. We don't know where it is. You know, the, the military, you know, 61% of uh, 3.5 trillion, all the dark money in the world. So that's where I give it to you. Eric, tell us about Gary Webb. So the whole Gary Webb thing kind of broke when I was having my comeuppance and awakening politically um i mean i remember i think probably the first thing i remember as far as waking me up to the fact that there's politics out there that we should probably understand that they're not telling us about uh was when um ollie north took the took the stand and was the fall guy for george hw bush donald rumsfeld and uh, uh the gipper mr ronald reagan and um it's it's so when when Gary Webb came out with his expose, it, it basically shed light on the fact that 
Dark okay, Alliance. Dark. I looked some of this stuff up today. He was it's the Dark Alliance series. It ran in the Mercury News starting in nineteen ninety six. I looked up some of this stuff today. Yes. I, I, I think I was I wasn't even I think I might have been vote yeah, no, I was voting age at the time. But um so I've kind of been an activist for a long time, but nothing I mean a lot of scattered stuff. Not you know, I went out and marched for pot rights and for civil rights and and for lgbtq rights although they didn't call it that back then but uh so so the thing with gary webb was he he shed light on the fact that reagan and bush were using cia connections to uh to send guns to iran uh to the contras and so this was actually taking- nicaragua i looked this up here they were trying to overthrow the government of nicaragua and that's right. where so, uh, the weapon, the country so, was there. Yeah. Right. And so he also used the money that they were making from all of that to, to send guns down to Nicaragua, Nicaragua. And they were getting, so, so they were, they were getting money from the Middle East. Uh, and then they were, they were using that to purchase more guns and ship that down to Nicaragua. And then they were, they were getting cocaine back and, more money. And I looked and this up it, too. It was very cheap and very high grade cocaine, not just yeah, high cocaine. We're, yeah. we're talking like better than I used to get from my Miami connection. This was like the real deal. So I'm just kidding. Go ahead, keep going. You're good. Um, but uh, so what Gary Webb did as a journalist was he went and he interviewed people that were flying helicopters and planes and found out that they were they were uh, la- landing those drugs in arkansas where uh one slick willie uh mr ex-president bill clinton was the governor at the time and allowing this to happen under his nose which is probably how he got his ticket to the presidency are you making a are you making a right right. my speculation here (laughs) i'm guessing that's how he walk stepped up to presidency but um then they were taking that and distributing the cocaine to one stanley tookie williams that he was the one of the people who started the Crips and then they were, they were, they were giving the money to them. And so all the money that they were making in this was all going to fund these dark ops projects in, in, in coups that they were doing in, in everywhere from central to South America, South American terror states. They were funding South American terror states to overthrow yes. slightly progressive governments, slightly, maybe slightly left to center governments. The, the big reason why, they were financing these coups and these uprisings were because the people there were trying to liberate their resources and keep them out of the hands of American businesses. And the American businesses were like, Oh, we can't do this. So we need a coup. And, and so there's a, there's an, a really good book I read a bunch of years ago. It was um, confessions of a, I think it was Confessions of a Corporate Hitman, something about a jackal. But it was this guy who his job was to go down and try and convince these leaders, no, you got to do business with us. Or trust me, the people they're going to send after me aren't nice people. <laughs> and sure enough, you know, they, they'd be like, no, you know, screw you. We want our resources. We're going to work for our people. We believe in socialism and and we're going to do what's right for our people and our environment and stuff like that. And and, and so the, then the CIA got on board and said, you know what? No it's coup time and so then they would they would finance these terrorists and ship them guns and and do all this stuff so that they could gain 
business in you know so they're, all, they're doing this on behalf i mean the idea that enormous scale i mean the, the united states is the world's largest wef- weapons trafficker in the world it has yes. the world's largest military in the world it, it commits the world's most violence you know it's the world's largest terror state uh and one thing you know um the war on terror and the the right wing Republican Party, supposedly the Law and Order Party, which is that was just an endless war. And and Reagan was the only president to be sanctioned by the World Court. Uh, I guess admonishing him to obey international law and his and his terrorist wars in South America. So the Law and Order Party. I think he even got reprimanded on Law Day, which was a day that was uh, you know uh, created by right wing think tanks. On right. May Day, so that we forget about May Day and working class uh, course, solidarity movements throughout Control the world. narrative. Right? It's ridiculous. It's it's yeah. more than uh, you know. It's it's more than laughable. It's more than um, you know hypocritical. I mean, it's, I, I, words can't even explain. The Law and Order Party is the dirtiest uh, right wing well, you know uh, organization to you know overthrow governments around the world, and then you know. Talking about like, oh, the United States would never interfere in a global election. <laughs> I mean, that's that's it's completely ridiculous. We do like we spy, we overthrow elections that uh, and, and governments and, and and cast doubt into into countries' elections that uh, we that are our enemies. I mean, it's just it's just that's that's just that's the techniques. That's the that's the playbook. You know what I mean? Right. Get back to yeah, well, no, no, right, we're, to we're basically we're basically the center of democracy. I mean. Here's the irony of it. We're here today where there's there's powers that be in our nation that are complaining about immigrants coming onto our soil, air quotes, illegally, when look at the founding of our nation. <laughs> you know, we, we we came to a nation and brought war and poverty and and and, and smallpox and, and all sorts of horribleness that we're putting on these poor people. Yeah, biological warfare. Biological warfare, smallpox. Exactly. And these people are fleeing much of what Reagan and 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 then and then Obama and then Trump. The refugees. We should be taking them. You know, we we are the ones that created the disparity that they're fleeing from and empowered terrorists because it fit our business interests and was economically viable to the American you know pocketbook. And it's so sick. And and here's the crazy thing, just on Gary Webb before we jump off of this, because yeah, I, 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 I want to with Gary a little bit and, and uh, okay. how did Gary meet his end? And, and, uh, so he was yeah. so spot on with uh, with what he found out and what he shed light on, and 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 they can't have that. That that old Gary Webb decided he was going to kill himself by shooting himself in the head twice. Um, and I, read I don't that, know if anyone's ever. Corner. Yeah, the corner said. Uh, let me try if I can find the quote here. Um, the coroner said, It is very unusual, according to the coroner, to have two bullet wounds in the head in a suicide attempt. Yeah, okay. you know, he was very dedicated. <laughs> he was very, and so it's one of those things where it's like you hear these stories of journalists. I mean, so many, what was that one? I can't remember his name. It was, I think it was Chris something, but he was driving his car and then erratically it sped up and drove into a thing and lit on fire. Witnesses said that he was still alive and got into an aid car, but ended up dead. So we, we, I mean, we, we kill so many journalists that, and, and then here we are trying to crusade and, and, and get mad because Israel, our little puppet child that we, you know, use as a, a mainstay to commit terrorism on the Palestinians. 
who they're they're killing journalists and we're like bad israel and it's like wait a minute no we taught them this we were the ones that brought this to them so, well, they did it with fred hampton weapons. so i looked this up when we were looking and talking about some stuff about gary webb so fred hampton fred hampton 21 year old uh chairman of the illinois black Ch- uh, panther chapter uh, gunned down 1969 by uh, by a security force of FBI agents and uh, Chicago PD. Um, they identified him as a radical threat. Uh, according to Fred Hampton, the biggest threat was fascism. Uh, yes. I don't know for whatever reason they seem they didn't like uh, his message. Uh, they they uh, infiltrated the, the Black Panthers. Um, they uh, put out a massive disinformation campaign, counterintelligence. Um, on the night of, uh, on a night in December 1969, Fred Hampton was drugged, shot and killed in his bed during the raid. Where uh, in the apartment, one gunshot was fired, one to one at least 100 shots fired by the security forces that killed Fred Hampton, another Black Panther member, and um, I think also severely injured uh, at least three other people. Yes. Yeah, actually, I saw an interview with his mother, beautiful woman, and uh, obviously heartbroken. But, I mean, she's still with the movement, man. I mean, she's a very strong lady, and I have nothing but respect for her. Uh, I think Fred Hampton met his end for the same reason that uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. met his end. I mean, once you start appealing to more than just the oppressed black people as a civil rights person, and, and all of a sudden you're talking stuff like Rainbow Coalition in, in Fred Hampton's case, or going to talk to Union Halls in Martin Luther King Jr.'s case, uh, now, now all of a sudden you, you get noticed and they're going, wait a minute, this message might spread. I mean, it's the same thing that killed JFK. He, he was appealing to people on a level that they could not control. And so of course they had to take them out. I, I, and, and, the JFK conspiracy theory weeds, uh, I think, you know, and I've read some stuff on JFK, there's no uh, hint of any progressive policy from JFK. He was a right-wing radical and war criminal, uh, almost got us uh, all killed in nuclear annihilation. I don't, I don't I've, I've got some books here on Chomsky and, and uh, Rethinking Camelot. Uh, I buck a little bit of the popular uh, theories on JFK. I don't think he was any hero of, the I'm not the saying I'm not saying he's a hero, but there's things that he was doing that was rattling the wrong bushes. He was talking about UFO disclosure. He was talking about ending the CIA. Uh, he was talking about tying the hands very heavily of the FBI. He was talking about uh, uh, changing uh, a tax code. Uh, he was. And there were so many things that that he was on the cusp of before they decided that he needed to not be president suppose, anymore. Suppose. Supposedly, there's there's a documentary that you should check out. It's a long one. It's like three hours long, but it's called Everything from JFK to 9-11 is a Rich Man's Trick. And and in it, it outlines a lot of the um, controlling of the narrative and, and how we get fooled into believing that who they want us to be the boogeyman is the boogeyman. So, you know, I, t- I tend to take anything that comes through that narrative uh, as a grain of salt. Howard Zinn is one that is really oh, good. He's yeah, yeah. No, I mean, if you want to see an alternative history that probably is closer to truth than what R.I.P., man, he's the best. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I recommend any book he's written or any talk. Dude, I've seen I've seen countless lectures with this guy because I just incredible. He's incredible. Yeah. I went through a phase where I couldn't get enough of listening to him talk about history. Uh, uh, it's one of those things where, I would believe his narrative over anything that 
the media or an established textbook is trying to shove down my throat because they're really much just following the colonizer narrative where Howard Zinn was like, no, I want to tell the story of slavery from the point of view of a slave because that that's probably important. And, and it's, if you look in history books, you won't get that. I mean, the, the biggest thing you find out is that George Washington Carver was a genius and a, a freed slave. And it's like, well, what about the other ones? I mean, there was thousands. Let's, let's hear about this. Let, you know, let's but talk about uh, movements of the left, and I think you hit on it here, MLK uh, appealing to working class movements, um, working class widespread popular movements, you know, that maybe movements of the left, left today seem to fail in resonating, you know, with the working class community, and we need to do a better job on the left of, you know, getting um, more solidarity and buy-in from the working class community. But he was killed um, not, not while fighting uh, and protesting against racist sheriffs in Alabama, but he was killed while trying to organize a sanitation strike, you know, and that's yeah. like, that's when people oh, he started, started talking to white unions and all of a sudden it was that's like, right. hmm. <laughs> well, and same with Fred Hampton. He was starting to appeal to college kids of every race and background. I mean, we're talking rich white people were going to listen to him speak because it energized him because they finally had hope in the fact that they weren't going to have the same miserable world that their parents had left them. And that's something that that hope has to be crushed. You know what I'm saying? And it's sure, like, to sure. me, I, I think that's, you know, maybe we should charge that hope and keep it going, but no doubt, the powers no that be, they don't like that stuff, man. Once you start bringing people together and, and bridging divides, you're a problem in their book. One of the, one first, of the um, big uh, movements that I was awoken or radicalized to was um, the Occupy Wall Street movement. And I thought it was really cool and really organic and spread throughout the country in oh, dude, days they, and weeks. And I think had, the establishment was really shook when, when it really... They had any kind of a foundation and a way to weed out infiltrators, we would be looking at a new world today. But unfortunately, they were sitting on somebody else's grass. And, and that's something that when, when when you're doing that, it's really hard to have an untoppable movement. I mean, that's kind of why they, I they push. All have, they all have shelf life. Every movement has a shelf life. You know, revolution, I don't think has a shelf life. But uh, these these political movements, maybe six months, you know, and, and we're, everyone's ready to move on to the next thing. But the establishment took notice, you know. Right. Yeah, you end up with that stack of bumper stickers stuck to the back of your car. <laughs> yeah, you're driving around with a bumper sticker from... What was that three years, four years ago? Oh, yeah, I remember that movement. Right. Well, and if you, if you peel one off, you see the one before it, and you peel that one off, and you see what you were doing before that. I mean, it's... Absolutely. But the, the, see, the it's all the same, though. It's all the same stuff just being recycled. Us on the left, you know, true leftists, uh, the cause is always, you know, freedom, solidarity, equality, a better world for, you know, everyone. All right. All right. Anyways, before I, before I get too hippy-dippy, before I get to peace, love, and hug a tree, I just want to bring it back to our friend Gary Webb um, and, and the hero he was and the, the connection that he discovered, and I think it's well-supported in the literature. Of course, the establishment denied it, but the connection between the war on drugs or the dark money associated with the drug the drug uh, ring, you know, essentially, if you want a large amount of untraceable money, you get it through drugs, right? So he oh, yeah. un he un he unraveled the link uh, between 
the South American fascist terror state connection, um, the war on drugs, the war on terror. And of course, we didn't even mention that cocaine and crack um, destroys lives and communities. So, oh, especially when your your administration is using uh, event Senator Joe Biden to help push mandatory crime bill, bill. nineteen ninety four. That was the nineteen ninety four crime bill um, that uh, Senator up. Joe Biden. That's right. Went out there and worked for the people. One of the architects. <laughs> one of the architects of the crime bill. Sure. Yep. Well, yeah, no, and here's the crazy part. So what we're talking about is drug connections that ironically date back to Nixon in the Vietnam era. And I mean, the ironic, the ironic part is, is meanwhile, Nixon was using drug connections in the, you know, for, for the Vietnam and, and, and other black ops stuff that he was doing. I mean, we're, 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 these people live in the shadows. And, and drugs in a lot of ways is how they finance that guns is another one um h- hiding pentagon budget money is another one right, uh but five trillion that i mentioned earlier that's just what we know, know about anyway, I mean, yeah, no, budget trying, is that you know i'm trying to tie it back but the ironic part is is nixon also knew that he needed an endless war because if you go to war with the country you eventually defeat the country and the war is over so if you need you, you need an enemy, a boogeyman that, that never dies, never goes away, and always changes, and it doesn't have to be the same person every time. You could say this person's the drug, and then this person's the drugs, and then this person's the drugs. So you just keep on shifting, and so he used that as as this tactic of militarizing our our police and our you know and and hyper militarizing our, our nation, uh, f- you know, for the military industrial complex. Uh, through this this war on drugs that he, he didn't really blow it out but he got it started and then reagan came along used nixon's drug connections for his little dirty dealings with a lot of the same people i mean they were they were, they were using a lot of the same connections donald rumsfeld was lubricant for this whole deal both nixon and reagan and 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 so they're using the same drug connections and then they're and then reagan like took this little nixon idea of this drug war and blew it up huge and and then yeah i saw it drastically i think the 1980s were was when the united states started becoming uh a state of mass a police state and uh a state yes. of mass incarceration i believe in 1980 there was uh 500,000 prisoners today there's over 2 million yes. and we spend uh exponentially more on police and prisons and well, we're absolutely no, no, not by any metric, not safer whatsoever. You know, it, we're not any it, safer it, than we were in 1980. In fact, <laughs> you know, you could probably argue in some of the inner cities that are crumbling across this country uh, that now resemble third world countries, yes. there's a lot more violence. And the other thing about violence and crime generally is that crime is typically poor people committing crimes against other poor people. It's yeah. a hungry and desperate. Yeah. No, and it's one of those things where so I, I had a buddy whose uncle, uh, he moved he moved out by us when when he retired, but in the um uh at least where we where we were living at the time. But uh his uncle was a, a police trainer or what I can't remember what, what the title is, but he he would train cadets and new new hires and, and his specialty, well, one of them that he would train people was at the shooting range. And he noticed a difference in 1984. There was a shift from when you were at you know doing target practice at your shooting range, you 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 weren't doing kill shots before 1984. You were shooting for the shoulder, you were trying to disarm, you you were trying to incapacitate. 
And in, in 1984, there was this shift where all of a sudden you're aiming for headshots and heart shots. And, and that was a major thing that had him kind of like turn away from the force. Like he, he retired early because he was just like, I don't like this change in what we're doing. We're no longer police. Now we're assassins. And, and they were going after a very targeted group of people, basically people of color, uh, uh, people on the lower end of the earning spectrum that were desperate and, you know, maybe use some drugs to self-medicate for some of the trauma they had suffered or were trying victimous, to escape. The victimless crimes, right? Victimless yeah. crimes. I think oh, yeah. the drug war, uh, the, 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 the drug war is a race war. I think the, uh, is a, is a class war. I think all these things are synonymous, synonymous. And I think that there needs to be a place. This is what the, this is the thought of the ruling class. There needs to be a place for the superfluent, um, the superfluous, you know, the people that don't contribute to the economic system, the people in the inner cities, or per- perhaps the people that are dissidents and and revolutionaries and subversives. Well, yeah, like there needs to be a place for these people, you know, and that's why there's always more money for more police. There's always more money for more bars, more jails, more guns. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the gold. Gold. Loans, more, Yeah. The gun no, I wrote down some statistics. Forty percent. So yeah, forty percent uh, in the United States. Forty uh, percent of worldwide civilian gun ownership that the U.S. accounts for. Forty percent of it. There's three hundred and ninety-three million guns in the United States, and I think those three hundred ninety-three million guns are owned by like less than ten percent of the population. Uh, in the United, and it's only it's it leads the world in gun violence. It leads the world in. Um, uh, well, I guess it's not actually, there's actually uh, countries that have a higher police uh, murder rate, uh, but it's very high. It's a big problem. I did a podcast on, uh, you know, homicides committed by police. So I don't want to say it's the highest. It's actually not surprisingly. I was surprised too. But it's uh, in terms of just gun violence and mass shootings, you know, they, they happen at a rate off the charts compared to any other country in the world in the United States. And even like a domestic, domestic, uh, um, assault or disturbance, you know, and maybe in another country and the United States, a lot of times that ends in a gun homicide. So I think the, the gun culture, uh, the violence is a major, major problem in the United States. And I think some of the roots and seeds of it are the gun culture. And I think, um, Chomsky had talked about this and I find it interesting. Uh, the reason that we have this gun culture was when America was founded, you know, of course we were defending ourselves from the Brits, you know, and our, uh, and our, Revolution bears and savages and oh my. savages, right? Native Americans, that's what they called it. But the, the, I'm sorry, the Native Americans, we needed guns really... to, yeah, to, to exterminate Native Americans and to, to colonize the country. I say that because I'm a, you know, a white person, but or uh, that sort of thing. But that's the way it was looked at then, and that's that's the way right. it was. We don't need these guns. The reason that we had these strong protections for guns was because. The ruling class wanted to colonize the United States from sea to shining sea. You know, we are a city on the hill. We were going to wipe out whatever the Native Americans, the savages, or whatever derogatory term they used, any means necessary. And we needed guns to do that. We were going to wipe out the predators that threatened our livestock. And we were going to wipe out. I mean, it's anybody who's a threat becomes this this big issue that we just decide we need to eradicate. Now now we got people walking to Starbucks getting a coffee with you know, holsters and, uh, and assault rifles. It's completely ridiculous. But the whole idea of what the gun culture was founded on is no longer a threat. We're not defending ourselves from the Brits. We're not defending ourselves or uh, 
uh, carrying out a genocide against Native Americans. And in fact, we should give them their lands back, you know? Um, well, and anyone who believes that we're going to use guns to take out our tyrannical government is no, it's not going to happen. No. Not thinking it through. There's inevitabilities there that they're Peace just not. This is the only way. Through. You know, an MLK hit on that. I think that's the only way. Peace is the only way. I'm not a Leninist. Uh, I'm not even a Marxist. I don't think that there needs to be some sort of violent revolution, you know, to overthrow the government. I think what we need is a peaceful, bottom-up, democratic, popular revolution. And if there's going to be violence, again, I get back to it, it's going to be carried out by the ruling class and not by us. Yes. Well, yeah, and that's what it comes back to. It's, it's funny. So, like, I've been listening to you call yourself an anarchist this whole time. And, it, like, that's that's earlier on that's that's kind of what i considered myself was an anarchist and then i realized that anarchy is kind of the philosophy socialism seems to be kind of more the the social structure and communism seems to kind of be the more economic structure but they're all really describing the same thing and that is collectivism and 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 i think that really getting back to that and breaking the powers of these warmongers that lead us is is kind of the step forward that, that we need to take and a lot of that comes through class solidarity and uh, and a lot of it comes from recognizing the fact that these people that we think are natural born leaders and so great on top of the hill they're they have not earned their position you know their their ancestors stole it they they don't even earn their position about, a, a little bit about ideology i'm, I'm with you there uh, in terms of my I call myself an anarchist i i, I keep it very simple I just oppose unjust authority. I, I want as minimal authority as possible. That doesn't necessarily mean that I want chaos. And I actually believe in a high... Well, it has nothing to do with chaos. The fact that people... I mean, it's an un, a misunderstood term. Anarchy has to do yes, with responsibilities. Yes, it has yes. as much as it has to do with freedom. And, 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 and so many people... I mean, it's like communism. It's this hot-button issue that people don't really know what it is. Socialism. I mean, like, I equate the three as kind of the same thing they're just they're different sides of the same topic but it's so, so here's how so i would how describe it is an anarchist and I, I a famous anarchist i wish i could uh wish i could remember the quote but all all uh anarchists are socialist deep down to their core but that yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that all socialists are anarchists but deep, right. to, to me fundamentally i just oppose unjust authority unjust hierarchy i think we need to get out of Elite well, we need to be a merit-based domination and, and control. And I don't even like leaders. I don't like the term leaders. I think we need representatives, not leaders. Um, educators. Education is very important. We need to educate. Well, no, I mean, instead, if a politician, instead of being the one, like, say, say we had direct democracy, which we should. It's not possible. I don't think it's possible. We're going to have, there's going to have to be people sitting around determining what we vote on. There's going to have to be people that are educating the populace. Well, I'd like as much of it as possible. I don't think that's where we democracy. still need the politician. Because if, if we have this direct democracy and everybody's going to vote, they're not going to vote on stupid things you know they're going to vote, vote on, on how many pens we should have it right. uh, you know right. what i mean that would be stupid there's going to be an administrative head that so we need that we need out. some representation hopefully working class representation that uh you know we transfer but let, let me just get to the basically the difference between anarchism and uh what i think is um communism i think of, of communism is the bolshevik revolution centralized authority uh the soviet Union was a yeah. Was not a, was not a very good place to live. It was not 
a paradise for workers. It was a, it was a dungeon for workers. Many of the workers weren't that much better off following the revolution, and that's because all the worker worker organizations and federations were essentially dissolved following the following that resolution. Basically, what anarchism is is socialist libertarian. You know, there's a libertarian usage of the term in the United States, which is not the classical usage. The, the socialist libertarian is basically someone that's an anti-statist branch of. Uh, communism, where instead of having the centralized state, the, the decision making, uh, where uh, bureaucrats un- unaccountable are are in power, it's more decentralized, and it might be structured and organized. I like anarcho syndicalism. That's my, I think, my favorite political philosophy. Uh, basically, a society highly organized, highly structured, where federations of workers are in communication throughout the world, uh, loose, loosely connected, you know, but still connected. Um, organized we have to have an exchange of information and knowledge. Yeah, sure. We're all working together without without a big nation state or without these borders or arbitrary governments, but you know, connected federations and communities organized again around whether it's the local community or around work, you know, it's got to be organized around something. So I really support uh, an ideology and structure of society that's democratic and that's organized around not transnational corporations or structures of hierarchy and domination, but we're we're working class um, organized efforts where we have co-ops and worker owned and worker controlled enterprises, not this uh, corporation transnational stuff with a board of directors and an executive I think broadening that out to community trusts, um, you know, utilities should be owned by the community it serves, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. So sure. you're still going to have services. You're still going to have technology. You're still, you know, it's not like we're going to be the Amish. No, this, but, is, this is for a highly organized, highly technological, modern society. We don't, yes. this doesn't have to be the dark ages. We don't have to get rid of computer technology, which of course was publicly funded uh, all by the state. You know, the, the Pentagon is essentially a funnel for taxpayer money to high tech industry. So yes. the taxpayers paid the cost of automation, computer, the internet, all that kind of stuff, telecommunications. And that, so that's how Zucker, that's how Zuckerberg made his first billion off of uh, Facebook was from the military. I mean, come on, it was an information a data gathering site. That's capitalism. <laughs> capitalism in practice is not, you know, uh, private ownership. And if it fails, it fails. These institutions are highly protected. They're subsidized by the taxpayer. They're publicly subsidized, but the profits are all private. That's essentially class war, and that's essentially neoliberalism. If we actually had real capitalism, when the banks and greedy bankers and greedy executives crashed the economy, they would be allowed to fail. There would not be any socialist public bail. Yeah, of these and all those markers on all those properties would be up in the air, and people could just say, occupancy is law. <laughs> so i want to get let's let's we, we got about uh how much time do we have 20 or so minutes we're not going to go that long let's get to the, you talked a little bit or we talked together in the pre-show meeting about the banking system we talked a little bit about blackrock state street vanguard these are um essentially asset managers controlling every facet of our, our daily lives they're diversified holding companies they have it looks here at like twenty trillion Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street combined. I, I wrote these figures down. Who knows how accurate they are? But saying BlackRock, um, nine point five trillion in assets controlled. Vanguard, eight trillion dollars in assets controlled. State Street, around four trillion dollars in assets controlled. That's twenty plus trillion dollars. That's a crap ton of money. And the estimate here for the total. Um, Asset control of these types of firms is over a hundred trillion dollars. So I think there's 
um, more than a dozen of these uh, firms. One of them, they weaponized debt, you know, um, as, the, as the economy was deregulated, starting with Reagan and Thatcher, those era, new, those reforms uh, breaking down the Bretton Woods banking system. Uh, it used to be an economy that was, uh, the investment was something like 95% on production and 5% on speculation. Now it's all been flipped. About 95% of Wall Street investment is speculation, looking for the next big firm that's going to explode and invest in, you know, not infrastructure projects or public health or education. So I, you had researched this a little bit, and I had looked it up uh, following our, our talk on the phone. It's, so, it's been a point of interest of mine. Go ahead. Uh, I'd love to hear you talk about it. I mean, my take on BlackRock and the like is that they, they basically they take our pension money. And everyone gets their little return. And then they take the shares that our pension money, uh, or not pension, I guess it's retirement money, but uh, they, they take the shares that our collective retirement money affords and they buy influence on the boards of these companies. So instead of us with our own money being able to be the shareholder and actually go and take a vote and, and influence the way these businesses conduct business, uh, you know, and, and, and follow their model, uh, this other corrupt group of, you know, parasites uh, uh, takes our money and uses it for their own influence and to make themselves fabulously wealthy along the way. And, and then when we see our Pinsky little returns, they've used their influence to uh, basically do like insider trading and stuff like that. So that they, they will purposely make us lose money so they can gain, you know, I mean, it's, it's a whole game of cat and mouse and, and it's just, you know, yeah, a shell predatory game. financial, uh, right. Yeah. Predatory financialism and they're making money on our debts. Yeah. I mean, the wealthy, yeah. I think I looked it up We're yeah, we're $300 trillion in debt. Who do we owe? <laughs> Who do we owe? Exactly. You know? Well, we owe China and we owe the Rothschilds. And we, owe, I mean, you could keep going down the list of uh, but the, the, see, the, the money is created on a spreadsheet. You know, the World right. Bank and, and, uh, or I guess the Federal well, Reserve a, in America, there's no limit on what debt we can create. Like, like I said it before, there's always plenty of money to go around for war and bombs and planes and more yes. prisons and, and, and more cops, you know, but anytime. Uh, the people ask for help for canceling student debt, or we want better public education. We want a public healthcare system that actually works. You know, yes. so there's always money to go around for these uh, repressive, um, you know, violent carrying uh, institutions to carry out violence and repressive force, uh, and and make war. And these these these. Um, Federal Reserve is not limited. They can just create money on a spreadsheet. The federal government can create money just as easy as it can um, cancel it. Um, yeah. But the whole banking system is is founded on debt. One thing, though, that um, especially in a recession, too, we don't. I mean, there's always these austerity. Um, there's always these austerity hawks and deficit hawks, especially when they're when the economy is uh, not in a good place, um, or when their party's not in power. Yes. Yeah. When their party's not in power. For sure. But the worst way, the best way, I should say, to tank an economy in a recession would be fiscal um, conservatism or fiscal responsibility. We yeah, want no, to spread money invest out there your way out. infrastructure projects. That's why I really I like the idea of the Green New Deal. And, you know, prior to oh, jobs programs, 
huge. Jo- yeah, yeah, the jobs programs that you know, like the like the first New Deal, but now we need a Green New Deal and environmental, uh, consciously green technologies uh, that the that the United States government could could head or any world government could head and could focus on. Uh, provide you know jobs, good paying jobs, and jobs that we need. You know, I think the I had read well, somewhere that the industrial, the manufacturing sector in America. I think its unemployment levels are now uh, at the depression level. So we used to be a uh, we used to be a country that was that head at, at the end of World War II when we controlled half the world's wealth. We were an we were a manufacturing powerhouse. Now look at the Rust Belt where I'm from. You know, we have. Uh, Rusted out factories that are vacant and unemployed towns, which, you know, at one point the, the whole the whole towns in Detroit and Pittsburgh and Baltimore were centered around these factories. And now they're empty. You know, the resources are still there. The people are still there. But the jobs have been transferred overseas. And that's that's neoliberalism. And that's you know globalization and domination of transnational corporations. The, the, the economy is no longer centered around the local community, but these uh, asset managers and transnational corporations that are now diversified in every every sector of the economy and from food to technology to banking or dominating our lives and the management of these companies you, you buy your way on these boards you know with with your influence you know uh, and they're unaccountable they're un, they're not under democratic rule or participation whatsoever they're managed and and ruled and dominated by elites. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely it's a uh, it's not a very uh, efficient or productive structure. There, there's no sustainability to it. Um, but I mean, there was a time when "Made in America" meant something, and, and, and then somewhere along the way, we we shipped our manufacturing base off to China, and then got mad when China started learning how to make this stuff and making it on their own, which created a whole nother quagmire of just ridiculousness but the idea of consolidation has never ever been our friend and and, and centralized control i mean it, you, you've spoken out about it several times it's it's something where once you have a centralized control it's lost touch with those that it controls like okay let's let's go back to the business model i'm trying to start say you say you need a manager for a particular uh aspect of production in order for that person to oversee other workers, they have to work, you know, in, in my model, they would have to work every single position that they're seeing over. I mean, if you have three people that do the same kind of job, they're, they're only doing it once. But th- at least once every six months, maybe a year, they have to do a full day and not an easy day. I mean, we're talking they have to do a hard day's work in that position so that they can understand what they're overseeing. This is something you won't get from our current business model because managers are considered this elite force that doesn't have to work. They get to just tell other people to work. And, and it's one of the constructs that I think comes back to the whole concept of elite rule and why, why we need to abandon it. I mean, all of these, this idea that we have to pay the VIG to some global banker for inventing money out of thin air is is like i'm a math guy it breaks my brain when when they start talking about the value of money when it's imaginary and it's just like i'm sitting there looking at it going now you know 
if you put four seeds in the ground and you know you have a 75% success rate of propagation, you're going to get three plants. This I understand. But if I just invent this money out of thin air and I'm going to bring it down here and I'm going to put it into the American banks and they're going to owe me a certain percentage on what comes back when nothing ever gets shuffled. It's all electronic. It's not like they're moving gold. They're, they're, just, they're just shuffling X's and O's. It's, it's, it's I don't know. It, it just breaks my brain. I don't understand why we can't move past it as a people and just look at our leadership and see that they're they're inherently broken and they're broken by the same system that has broken us and created the trauma i mean it's how it dissolve these global banking institutions how it well, I, would the banks. And I think we need community banks not these investment firms i think we need community banks to invest in the local community not in you know trying trying to drive down currency or growth rates in uh, countries around the world. Like I think we should be focused on, like you said, right here in American production since that's right. the country. Well, we I, think, I think banking is just one industry that needs to be broken up. You need to break up big egg because their practices are part of what's killing the planet. I was reading a report the other day. If we could increase the biodiversity of the microbes that are in the soil that we're planting our food in, by 2%, it could capture 75% of the carbon we produce annually. Now, I don't know if you know what microbes are, but they're these little like bacteria that, and, and little microscopic organisms that live in the soil. And they're the ones that create soil health. We have these same microbes in our gut, in our stomach, because we evolved along with them. We ate food from the soil that had the microbes. Well, we've depleted that so much. Biodiversity has created has decreased by so much that there's this this it can't it doesn't have the function or the ability to absorb carbon and create that balance and that stasis and that cycle that that has kept our environment stable. Why do we have a collapse of the jet stream? Why do we have a collapse of of the the current the Atlantic current that's making it so that the water off the coast of Florida is is a uh, hundred one or a hundred yeah it was a hundred one degrees that's it's crazy. 100, it's 100, I think you said hundred ten the it's fact not, yeah it was hundred ten the the fact that we have destroyed the very buffers I mean look look at every time they put in a beachfront community on a wetland that should have been marsh because that helps hurricanes not devastate people I mean we're we're destroying things at an at this crazy rate and it all comes from these big companies that were some guy who's never stepped his feet on a soil on a farm ever is making decisions on well we're going to use these poisons we're going to plant these seeds you know let's break up monsanto let's break up general mills let's break up nestle you want to talk about an evil company let's break up nestle i think we have two options here you know we could break them up and dissolve them or we could let the workforce take them over you know we don't have to completely dissolve them or break them up well we could use the elements over but not as an entirety singular force you localize farms yeah you put put farming back in the hands of people that have to drink the water that was being poisoned by these big agricultural firms because they're not going to put poison in their soil because they're feeding their neighbors they're not going to feed their neighbors plastic because That's they the community love stakeholders, the destruction of the commons and the community stakeholders. Yes. You know, we're allowing these nameless, faceless corporations, transnational based thousands of miles away to make decisions that affect the local lives of many people in the local community. What do you think about industrialized farming and 
and industrialized okay. food production. And what do you think about the state of American food? I, I've read some things where yes, American yes. food is banned in many countries around the world, yes. you know, and that's yes. legislated. We're, we're, we're well, like, it's toxic on purpose. They, they're feeding us industrial byproducts and calling it food instead of giving us, I mean, we're, we're being starved with full stomachs because the food that we're eating doesn't have nutrients. I, I have I have connections in Africa and I have connections in South America that, that have dealt with this farming thing when Monsanto and Bill Gates and, and all of these people who thought that they were going to start this farming revolution decided to go over there and give them these GMO seeds. And now I have a, I have a connection in, in Uganda that, that teaches uh, he teaches permaculture all, all across the continent of Africa. And, and and he's currently trying to build up their genetic stockpile because they finally were able to rid themselves of Monsanto's GMO seeds that were poisoning their soils because in order for these seeds to grow, they had to use the poison. And they were like, you know what? We don't want to do this. We're going to go back to traditional farming methods. But it's been, a, it's been half a generation. So they have a whole group of farmers that need to even learn what traditional farming methods were so they can get off the toxic spill that is killing the American consumer right now. So they're trying to save. So I got, I found this statistic on co-ops, you know, and and more kind of, you know, um, influence uh, ownership management by workers. I found that co-ops are typically more competitive than corporations and they're also much more economically resilient. And here's a stat I wanted to, to, because we got about 10 minutes left. We're wrapping it up here soon. 80% of co-ops survive in the first five years versus only 41% of corporations of the typical traditional business hierarchy model. That's yes. almost double. That's almost double. 40% is pretty good, man. If you, I remember reading a thing that said, if you start a business, you have a 22% chance of success if you can make it the first two years. And that's, I mean, that granted, that was about 15 years ago, but it's, uh, um, yeah, it's one of those things where businesses where they were going to sell out, right? So the owner says, okay, I, I'm, t- it's, I'm time to retire, right? When he sells it to the company, to the, to the workers, they actually become more flexible and are able to expand more quickly than they ever did under a single owner. The ones that decide they're not going to do that and sell to a corporation gets liquidated. Everyone gets laid off and you end up seeing economic downturns for entire communities. So you you have the option of letting the people invest in themselves with their labor. I mean, sweat equity. Okay. You know what sweat equity is? It's, it's when you work for something, right? That was That was currency long before gold was ever traded. You work for something, you invested in it. Someone else comes along and decides, well, yeah, but I can put, you know, my grandpa's slave money into this. And now my own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll take my grandpa's slave money and I'll put it into this. And and then all of a sudden, you know, now I own it. No, to me, the sweat equity bought it. The sweat equity needs to be returned. And that's something where that that to me is a more valid investment than you'll ever get from any capital source. Because you're going to get somebody knows the business you're going to get somebody who cares about the business you're going to get somebody who has soul and loves the customers so you had mentioned about bringing back uh american manufacturing american made yes the democratic party um and i'm very very critical of uh political parties in general as an anarchist i oppose them in principle i don't think we need political parties uh even members of the founding fathers not that we should care that much but george washington said that they, they were uh, a big going to be a big problem for us, and of course they are. Um, but anyways, uh, back to 
the left and its failure and to connect with um, working class people. And of course, the Democratic Party left the working class generations ago, decades ago. Oh, in the 80s. They're now. Yeah, once, once Reagan gave them a spanking, they decided they needed to, to get on his fundraising model and they sold out the American people. So, in but, or maybe 86. Now people and demagogues and really skillful politicians. I don't think a lot of people like to give uh, Donald Trump credit, but the Make America Great really was really popular and really resonated with a lot of working class voters. Yeah, he's still a populist message. And then the populist, the populist but his policies kicked the populace in the face. Uh, they yes. were, I mean, the fact that a billionaire, you know, came out of nowhere to run for president shouldn't be that surprising. I think what's more surprising is someone like Bernie Sanders, who's run pretty successful campaigns with very minimal or no corporate funding, is should be the surprise. Not that some slick talking businessman and billionaire uh, who failed business from a from a slumlord apparently, right? So what about what about the 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 working class uh, and and the left is failure to resonate with the working class, opening up for demagogues like Trump to have some popular campaign and, and make it all the way to the White House off the backs of people that he was kicking in the face when he got in office. What about the failures of the left? How can how can the left do a better job of resonating with working class voters? Well, I mean, if the left wants to do a good job, the first step is abandoning the Democratic Party. Um, I, I really think party politics is is a, a big problem. Even the Green Party has its issues. Even the People's Party has more. I've been very critical of third parties too. I think if third parties had the funding and they got in power, they wouldn't act any differently than the two party system does currently. Because oh, it's all about sustaining your power. Once you have status and power, I mean, look what happened to AOC, man. She 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 talked a really great game, and she really tried to go out there and be active. Cory Bush too. I mean, they both went in there thinking, okay, we're going to do this good stuff. And we're really motivated to do it. And wait a minute, the problem, I got the problem a fund, is I'm going to fundraise, or I'm going to lose my seat. And you know, and they're like, I'm going to lose my seat. Like, like Gollum and the right. the precious. <laughs> I, I don't want to be too critical because I, I think there's, I, I think a lot of people on the left are really critical of AOC and the squad and of Bernie too. And they're all we got, to be honest with you. Are they doing great things? You know, I, I, I want more from them for sure. I, I the looked, problem I is looked. the system. The problem is. If you or me got in there or if you or me got it in the White House, there's not a lot we could do because of the system. It's in place. Uh, you got the court system. You got two houses uh, of Congress. You know, you have uh, the Constitution that kind of gets in the way. And, and, the, and, the, and the Supreme Court could always just say whatever it doesn't like and strike it down, saying it's unconstitutional. So there's a system in place, the capitalist system. It's enabled by elites and technocrats and one person or even a small group of people. There's not a lot of change that we can make happen. I think that there's some things we must do within the system, within the political system and the economic system. But part of what I'm trying to do here and part of what we're trying to do probably on the left generally is to educate people. People and try to make organized working class conscious, you know, uh, movements uh, outside the system too. But but we got to do a little bit of They're not alone when they have these radical thoughts. <laughs> Absolutely, we can't we can't be itemized sitting on right. social media and looking on Amazon on things to buy. We need to connect with other people. And as great as Zoom and uh, WebEx and these virtual meeting platforms can be to bring people together, I don't think anything. Um, uh, anything is a better supplement than actually being in person and connecting with a group of people at a at a community hall, at a meeting place, at a place where people gather, you know. And I think uh, 
number one uh, democratically organizing force in in America and everywhere is unions and working class movements. And uh, I think something like less than 10% of the population uh, of the working class is unionized in America. And that's been um, it's actually less systemic. When when I was born, it was closer to 65, I think almost 70%. And you got now, one minute you know, to go. Wrap us up here. Wrap us up. Anything you want to plug? I, it was a real pleasure. You got one minute to go. Um, yeah. Okay. So we're talking about what people can do. I don't think there's a political so- solution to what we need to do. I think you need to go out. You need to set up community gardens. You need to set up uh, uh, industrial guilds where you're actually working with people who know how to do stuff and get them doing stuff for the community. You need to make it mutual aid. None of this profit motive. Profit motive kills every beautiful thing in this planet. And we need to do it together. We need to create unity and we need to show people that it can be done. Because right now there's a lot of people afraid of, of, you know, because the word can't comes in, man. There is no can't. It's can and we will and we have to. And and that, that, I mean, that really sums it up right there. I'm starting an urban farm in my backyard just because I want to get my hands dirty and see if I can grow it into something. Give me 10 years. We might have a, a global network. I mean, that's my goal. And and it's all about all of us starting with one small thing, putting a little bit of time into it, coming together, small things become big things. Where, as Where, awesome, it's well said, that's very Howard Zinn-esque. So Eric, wannabe farmer, if people liked your message today, where can they connect with you? Where can they find you? Uh, I'm at Twitter. I'm bison. Uh, it's pronounced like the animal, but it's spelled B-A-E-S-O-N. Uh, I'm also on Blue Sky, if you're lucky to, enough to have had an invite. Bison, also. Uh, Be the Farm is a big one. I, I I haven't really been promoting it yet or building it, but I got BeTheFarm.com. That's going to be eventual media platform. Eric, Eric, we got to wrap it up. Thank you, sir. That's going to do it for today's episode of Necessary Illusions. I want to thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank my special guest, Eric, a wannabe farmer with an idea. You can find him on Twitter, Bison. He brought up a lot of great points and a lot of great insight today. I learned a ton from today's show. So thanks again for listening to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out. Thank you.